as we continue our series, the Apostles' Creed, utilizing the various phrases there to guide our times in God's Word. We now come to, I believe, in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. So we're going to look at this morning. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Hear God's Word as I read it. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This sends the reading of God's word, may the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God stand forever. Well, names mean something, don't they? Your name means something. You may not know what it means. Mostly now, we are named simply about, you know, what sounds good to our parents, or named maybe after a family member. That's about the extent of what our names mean. We don't actually, people don't normally know even the meaning of their kids' names anymore. I know the meaning of my kids' names. That was really important for us. It's really important on the Old Testament days as well, that when you read people's names in Scripture, they mean a lot. Often people didn't even necessarily get a name until they had revealed their character. Their, their name revealed who they were, revealed who their family was. Often they had a prophetic leaning. We name our kids even now still to a degree to what we want them to be or to become. My son Cademan, his name means wise warrior. We want, him, we want him to be a wise warrior. We want him to be a man for justice and truth who lives his life for the Lord's. My daughter's name is Lila Tove, which means beauty, beautiful night or good nights. We want her to be a beautiful, a beauty in the dark world and a dark night that we live in here in this world. So names mean something. And we all have, we all have association with various names, don't we? Y'all, there are names that you would never name your kid, right? I mean, people you knew growing up. Biblical stories do this to, you, to us, right? And there's people in the Bible who we would never name our kids after. I mean, Judas used to be a really popular name about 2,000 years ago. Ain't nobody naming their kid Judas no more, right? Or Jezebel. You ever thought about naming your daughter Jezebel? Oh, it's a girl. We're going to name her Jezebel. No, no, that's not a very popular name. It, it, often from TV shows, right? There's name associations. I, all I have to say is like one word, and you would know who I'm talking about. Newman. For those of you that are old Seinfeld fans. Sports, Peyton. You know who I'm talking about when I say the name Peyton. Those of you that are Christmas Story or Tour Story fans, if I say the name Sid, Sid Farkas, you remember him? What a great name. What a great name. There's others. Name associations, Monica. You would have thought with the, the, friend, the TV show Friends being really popular in the 90s and early 2000s that Monica would have taken off. But it didn't because of one particular White House intern. No one names their child Monica anymore. Names matter and they have a great amount of association now here's the question what do you think of when you hear the name of god god really values his name in fact the scriptures talk very often about the name of god often it's talking about we need to worship him and call upon the name 
It was actually how we understood who Christians were in Genesis. The great description of all the patriarchs was they called on the name of the Lord. What you think about God, what you think about the name of God, is perhaps the most important thought you can have. A.W. Tozer says this in one of his most famous quotes. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So we come today to the Apostles' Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. There's a lot of names there. And we come to Philippians 2, verse 9, where it says this, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. We sing it in some of our songs. He is the name above all names. So let's look at the name of God today. In Jesus, we see four titles that were, he has given this morning, or four names. We're going to look through each of these this morning in, in successive order. First, and we'll begin with Jesus. Jesus, simply the name Jesus. And what do we know about this name? I'm going to pinpoint at the end of these points what I want you to think about each of these names. But I give you some other information as well. Jesus. You know what's interesting about Jesus. That's his proper name. There was a lot of people in, in, in ancient Near East and in Jesus' time when he came who were named Jesus. It's actually the Greek name for Joshua. means the same thing. We'll get to the meaning in just a second. But what's interesting about when we hear this name Jesus in the New Testament, that his mom and his dad gave him because the angel said that's what they're supposed to name him, that Jesus is a real person. That's really important. He is not some ethereal being. He's not some spirit who wandered the earth. He's not some make-believe mythical character. The scriptures, in particular the Gospels, go out of its way to show us and to reveal to us that this man, this God, this man, this God who became man, had a name, and his name was Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. He lived during the reign of Tiberius. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, who crucified him. These are actual historical beings. He really lived at a real time in a real history. These are not simply religious myths that we have taken out of thin air that people wanted to create out of their own minds. If you look at the Gospel of Luke and Acts, Luke is writing to a particular intellectual and wealthy man named Theophilus. And he says, Theophilus, here's an historical account of all that Jesus did. These things actually happened. Now this makes Christianity really vulnerable. Did you know that? Christianity is the only religion that says, if these things actually didn't happen, there wasn't a man named Jesus who really came and really suffered, then none of this matters. None of this is true. But it is true, and it is real. So that's the first thing you can see about Jesus. But more importantly than that, what I want to talk about is the meaning of this name Jesus. Jesus, it was his proper name that he was given, but it actually has a significant meaning. And his name tells us about the mission that God has given this man Jesus. Because the name Jesus literally means God saves. In Matthew 1, verses 21, when the angel comes to Mary and prophesies to her that she's going to give birth to a child, it says this, the angel says this, She will bear a son, and you should call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. As I said a few minutes ago, it is the Greek word uh, translating from the Hebrew word Joshua. And Joshua comes from the the, uh, word Yeheshua, which literally means Yahweh or the Lord saves. The name Jesus means Jesus saves. This tells us about the mission, the general reason why he came to earth. Why did God take on human flesh? To save us. 
This is the mission, the thing that he came to do. The first and most fundamental thought that must come to your mind when you hear the name Jesus is my Savior, my salvation. This is why he came. He came to be a good example, but not primarily. He came to teach, but not primarily. Primarily he came to save. Remember what he said on the cross? On the cross, Jesus didn't say, hey, remember all of my teachings. He doesn't say, hey, remember all the good things I did. Instead, what does he say on the cross? He says, it is finished. Because he came to save. It was a work that he came to do. And inherent in this is some applications and some thoughts for us. When you think of the name Jesus, and I thought that he is my salvation, there's a couple things that must go on there. First and foremost, you must realize that you need a Savior. That's why he came. Because you needed a Savior. And he is your Savior. So first we need to realize that we need a Savior. Second, we must realize that Jesus is the only Savior. In Acts chapter 4, Peter, verses 12, getting up and preaching, he says this, For among men there is no other name given under heaven whereby we may be saved, but by the name of Jesus. You need a Savior. Jesus is the only one. And so that brings out the third point in regards to how, you, how inherently what this means for you is that therefore you must run to this name. You must run to this man named Jesus. You must flee to him as your Savior. If you're a sick man and you know someone has the cure and that sickness is going to kill you, you would do everything you absolutely can in order to get to the one who can cure you. That's what the woman with the issue of the flow of blood does in the Gospels in Matthew 9. She she chases after Jesus. She beats through a crowd all just to touch this man named Jesus. We must cry out like David does in Psalm 35. It's this beautiful phrase. He says this, O Lord, say to my soul, I am your salvation. That's a good word. J.C. Ryle brings us up about how sweet the name of Jesus is. And when we hear it, we must think Savior. Hear this quote. He says, Jesus is a name. Which is especially sweet and precious to believers. It has often done them good. It has given them what money cannot buy. And that is inward peace. It has eased their wearied consciences and given rest to their heavy hearts. The Song of Solomon, he says, describes the experience of many when it says, Your name is oil poured forth. Happy is the person who trusts not merely in vague notion of God's mercy and goodness, but they trust instead in the name of Jesus. Not just vague notions of God's goodness and mercy, but you trust in Jesus. When you hear the name of Jesus, I want you to think this, my salvation, my salvation. May the name of Jesus be sweet on your tongue because that's what you think. The second where we see in the phrase in the Apostles' Creed, we also see it in Philippians 2, is Christ. Jesus Christ. So in the church, we use this phrase, Jesus Christ, often. We see it throughout the New Testament. These two words go together. Now, does this mean that Jesus has a middle name? Is Christ his middle name? Is Christ his last name? Is, Christ, is Jesus, um, you know, from being in Mississippi for a couple of years, I became quite familiar with people with double names. This is really annoying when you're trying to learn people's names. So instead of just being Anna or Rachel, it's Anna Rachel. Instead of simply being Sarah or Grace, it's Sarah Grace. It, no. Does Jesus have a, a, a double name like a good southern girl or boy would have? No. It's, this is not simply two names that he has. What Christ refers to is it's a title. Literally what it is in the Greek would be Jesus the Christ. This is an office that he holds. 
or a title that he holds. And this word Christ is, once again, it's a Greek, the Greek translation of a Hebrew word. And the Hebrew word that is tra- being translated there is the word Messiah. So Hebrew word Messiah, what we see throughout the Old Testament is that there is this promised Messiah who's going to come and save his people from their sins, save them from the condemnation from the law, save them from the oppression of the peoples of the earth. The Messiah is coming. And the Greek translation of that word Messiah is Christ. But literally what both Messiah and Christ mean is anointed one. The anointed one. So when you hear this word Christ, it's one of the things you need to think of is the anointed one. That Jesus is the anointed one. The Messiah. Now that word anointed one in this whole idea, this concept of Messiah, brings together three different images from the Old Testament. Three different offices are brought together into one particular role and title of Messiah or Christ. And those three offices are these. And they're the three offices in which you got anointed for in the Old Testament. First was a prophet. See that Elijah got, a, got anointed as a prophet. Second were priests. When they were set aside to be priests, to mediate between God and his people, to make sacrifices for them on their, on their behalf, for their forgiveness of sins, that was what priests did. And then third, we see kings got anointed. Remember Samuel goes, he's trying to find a good-looking guy to replace Saul, and eventually he anoints David king. These are the three people who are the anointed ones of the Old Testament. But what we see in, is, is the Old Testament move, moves along that this concept and this idea of Messiah or Christ involves all three of these anointed roles and offices. And so what we see is that Jesus is anointed as the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. This is his office and his title and his role. But do we ever see a place where Jesus is anointed with oil as prophets and priests and kings were? Was he ever anointed with oil? We, we, we have almost no, we have, there's no indication of that in the Old Testament. He's given some myrrh, perhaps that indication of when he was a baby. But the place where he is anointed for this office as Messiah is at his baptism. You see, he is a greater Messiah. He's a greater prophet and a greater priest and a greater king. And he's a greater Messiah than anybody ever could have imagined. And therefore, his anointing is greater than simply mere oil. What is he anointed with at his baptism? When he goes down to the water and John the Baptist baptizes him, he's being set aside to the office of Messiah, the Christ. And who falls upon Jesus? The Holy Spirit. He is greater in his office because the Holy Spirit has, been, has come down upon him, setting him apart for this particular work. Now, what's surprising in the Gospels and what the disciples want and all the people who follow Jesus is they look at Jesus and he is a lesser Messiah than they ever thought. You see, their understanding of a Messiah, what he would do is he would come and set the people of Israel free from all Roman rule and, in fact, usher in a time in which Israel rule and reign over the whole world. That's not what he did, is it? He comes and what does he do? He dies. What a failure of a Messiah. So he looks like, he looks like much less of a Messiah, but biblically speaking, what we see throughout the Old Testament is they're freaking out and they're losing their minds because they're going, the Messiah, the Christ, has come and look at all he has done. He has fulfilled all three roles of prophet and priest and king. And so when you hear this word Christ, Here's what I want you to think about. I'm going to draw up this prophet-priest-king image real quick here. I want you to think about this, that he is the perfect and perpetual prophet-priest and king. And when Jesus comes, he fulfills a perfect office as the Christ. An office is a role, it's a title, it's a place of authority. Now, I don't know about your experience, but my experience has been this. 
There has been no one who holds a place of authority or title or position of power in my life or seen over other people who I have not heard people complain about. People complain about presidents. They complain about governors. They complain about congressmen. They complain about teachers. They complain about pastors. They complain about parents. Everybody who's given an office, we look at and we go, they fall short. And that is totally understandable. Because the office is too great for them. You ever gone and read the qualifications for elder and deacon in God's church? It is too great for us. We just seek to live into it and to live up to it. But it is beyond us. All the offices, all the responsibilities that people have are beyond us. And because of this, because our presidents and our government and those who are authorities over us, because they're imperfect people, it makes for an, an unsettling inside of us. A frustration, an angst that things are not the way they ought to be. But when the Christ comes, when the Christ comes, one now sits in the office of prophet, priest, and king who is absolutely perfect. You see, the frustration of the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament is that when there were prophets would show up, they would preach God's word, but it wouldn't change their hearts. What does Jesus promise to do when he comes? He sends his spirit to transform our hearts. So that when his word goes out, he actually comes to reside in us, to change us and transform us. So that the word doesn't just simply hit our ears and fall short, but it does its work. What about the priestly role? Throughout the Old Testament, the people, they're constantly making, they're slaughtering thousands and thousands of lambs and sheep and goats and cows before the Lord. It's sacrifices. Why? As a means of getting cleansed and forgiven. But one day, what the Old Testament is constantly pointing to is it's pointing out to the fact that there is going to be one who is a perfect priest who will rend the veil, the thing that kept us between, the, the, the barrier between us and God. And there is now a perfect priest, a perfect priest, who has gotten rid of that veil perpetually and perfectly. And what about kings? Throughout the Old Testament, we see this longing. People, the people of Israel, even the best kings, even David and Solomon, they're imperfect. They're imperfect. They oppress the people. They're unjust at times. But what we see with Jesus is we have the perfect servant king who's come to make all things new, who's come to serve us and to make all things as they ought to be. This is what Jesus came to do. And what's beautiful and what's awesome for us is we can then rest in that truth. That yes, our government officials will always fall short. Your parents will always fall short of the office of parents. Your pastors will always fall short of being the examples that we need to be. But there is one who does not fall short, who is perfect. And not only is he perfect, but his reign in this office is perpetual. He sits on the Supreme Court. He never goes away. And yet he is sitting on the court. He won't die either. And therefore that means for all of eternity, these are the places where he sits on your behalf. So when you think of Christ, here's what I want you to think of. I want you to think of the perfect and perpetual prophet, priest, and king. And therefore you can have rest. So you think of the name Jesus you think my salvation. When you hear the name Christ, you think of the perfect prophet, priest, and king. Third, we come to the third phrase in the Apostles' Creed. His only son. His only son. It wasn't just anybody who could come and save God's people from their sins. It wasn't just anybody who could come and sit and take up the office of prophet, priest, and king and to be the anointed one. It had to be someone particularly special. It had to be God himself. And what we see in the phrase, his only son, is this tells us about the sufficiency 
of Jesus' being to save us. There's a sufficiency that is inherent to who he is because he is God. Now I'm going to come back to that in just a few moments, but we have to do some hard work here. I'm going to ask you to put on your, your, your intellectual cap for a few moments to engage with me on some difficult things because the Apostles' Creed says his only son. And in this phrase, his only son, there are some places where historically the church has lost its mind or some people in the church have lost their minds and gone wayward. The issue with this idea of Trinity, this is one of the great mysteries of the scriptures and the mysteries of, the, of, of Christian doctrine, is that there's three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And one of the issues that comes up in the New Testament, and what is the nature of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son? Well, it says that in Apostles' Creed, and we see it in Philippians 2, that Jesus is the only Son. Which means this, it is, the Greek word under that is the word monogenes. Mono means one or only. Genes means kind or being. He is the only one who is perfectly like God. The only being like Him. Only one like Him in any way. We have a number of uh, very famous phrases in the scriptures where this term monogenes is underneath it. John 1.14 is one of them. Where it says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son. Now the difficulty comes in thinking about this relationship between God the Father and God the Son, though. You think, well, it's, it's a, God is always speaking to us in analogous terms. We are, he is incomprehensible and above us. And therefore, he is using human imagery to communicate to us who he is. But there is a limitation to our understandings. And there's a limitation to how far the analogies can go. Because when we think father and son, there's a couple problems with that analogy when we try to work it back up into the Godhead. What first is this, is that fathers are greater, greater than their sons. Right now, I am stronger than my son. I am bigger than my son. Not only that, but I came before my son in time and in space. I existed before him. But what we see in the relationship amongst these members of the Trinity between God the Father and God the Son is that God the Father and God the Son have eternally existed along with one another. That Jesus is not created like we are created. He has always existed. And he is not less than the Father. Now these two points that I've just made there, those two distinctions, follow along some of the two main ways in which people have lost it and have strayed from what is considered to be biblical orthodoxy as the church has sought to understand this relationship between the Father and the Son. Let me give you two and delineate what they are really quickly. Two errors on this issue. First are those who come to believe and hold to a doctrine that says that Jesus is part of creation. This is what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. Okay? And they get that... From one, one place we get that is from Colossians 1, verse 15, where it says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Well, that's a difficult one. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, does that mean that Jesus is simply the first created being? I think biblically the answer is no, but let me walk through it just a little bit. What is being communicated to you here is he's the image of the individual God. And he's the firstborn of all creation. That what is being highlighted here is not that he is the firstborn in that he is the first thing created. But this term firstborn is a sign of preeminence and dignity. 
For example, in Psalm 89, verse 27, it says this. It is used of David the king. And it says, God says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And what that means is, it is saying what is being communicated in that passage is that David is in a place of dignity and preeminence over all the other kings. So we see there that that what Jesus is being referred to here is that he is above everything else. So what you see in Colossians 1.15 is that it may simply refer to Christ's unique and tremendously exalted status over everything else, every other bearer of God's image. That you're called an image bearer of God, but there is a degree to which Jesus is a far greater bearer of God's image than you are. He's the exact representation of God, not you and me. When it says firstborn of all creation, that we still kind of have some angst over this issue. And the main key word here, I'm sorry to kind of go into some of these kind of grammatical things this morning in regard with the Greek and some splicing of the English. But the main word there is the word of. Firstborn of all creation. Does that mean that Jesus is part of creation or over all creation? If you, we had NIV and ESV this morning. All right. My son memorized it in the Greek, so that's why he didn't say anything. Um, so, yeah. And, and the, the people who really like more literal translations that are closer to the Greek, they like the ESV. So we love you, NIV people. But here's what the NIV does. They do some interpretation for you in this passage in Colossians 1. Instead of of there, they use the, the preposition over. Now, the reason why they do that is because of the very next verse. They do some translation and some interpretation for you. Let me read verses 15 and 16 together. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Okay? So what does the of mean? Well, verse 16 helps answer it. So it says this, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or domains or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Now, the issue there, the key word is for So what we see there is the for supports and explains what is going on in verse 15. For Christ is above all things. So what it's showing to us there is the of is not that Jesus is a part of creation, like my pulpit is made of wood, but that he is of, like Barack Obama is the commander-in-chief of the military. He's commander-in-chief of the military in the sense that he is over and above as the ruler over it. And that's what Jesus is. If Paul were trying to say that Jesus was part of creation, he would not have supported it by saying that Christ created all things. Verse 16 clearly teaches that Christ is the firstborn of all creation in the sense that he rules over all things. Okay, so that's one significant historical theological issue. The second is this, and it follows those who were known as Arians. They follow the teaching of a man named Arius on this issue of the nature of Christ and his relationship with the Father. And what they believe is that the Father imparted divine status to Jesus, but that Jesus was not equal to the Father. So essentially what they said was that Jesus is God, but he's not as big a God. There's God the Father, and then there's Jesus and the Spirit, who are a little bit lesser in the Trinitarian uh, relationships. And where they would get that is a passage such as John 14, 28, where it says this, You heard me say, this is Jesus speaking, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. That's a problem. But the orthodox and historic position of the church is this. In defending the doctrine of Jesus' eternal deity, is to look at passages like this. Colossians 2 verse 9 says, Jesus is the fullness of deity in bodily form. 
John 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word. The Word is referring to Jesus. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God's. Okay. There's no mention there of some lesser status. So what in the world is John 14 talking about? What is Jesus trying to say there? The question arises then, is Jesus truly equal to the Father? It appears that some passages seem to say, yes, absolutely. In fact, most passages seem to indicate that. And yet there are a few passages here and there that make us go, ugh, I don't know. Why does Jesus talk this way? As biblical scholars and theologians have looked at this issue, that they, they believe the Bible is talking about the relationship of God the Father and God the Son in two different contexts. Okay? Context matters, especially when you're doing theology. And they, they splice it out in two different ways. I'm going to give you a 50-cent word here. The first is this. I'm talking about the relationship between the Father and the Son is that the Father and the Son are ontologically equal. I'm so sorry for using a massive word. Let me break that down ontologically so I don't just simply, simply like give you a big word and feel good about myself. Ontologically means being or essence. At the core of who he is, Jesus is fully God. He is the fullness of the substance of God. He is equal in power and glory. They are the same. Okay? At the same time, then they then talk about the fact that there is a difference in the way they seem to function within time and space and in the relationship. They have taken on different roles. And what they use there is this other word, this theological word called economy. That the Son and the Spirit, by the way, the Son and the Spirit are economically subordinate to the Father. So, ontologically, in their being and their essence, they are equal, but in their function and roles, they take a subservient role to the Father. Jesus says, I don't come to do my will, I come to do the will of the Father. And in other places it says the Spirit is sent out by the will of the Father and the Son. When you're speaking about economic terms, we're talking about the arrangement, the way things work. Now this is incredible. And the fact that eat, there are three, this, this, this is incredible. And this, this gotta end, has got to end any sense of pride and arrogance in God's church. That members of the Godhead would say, I will submit myself to another member of the Godhead. Just as an aside, since I haven't said anything this morning that I think will get any of you angry at me, let me say, you, say, say this to you. In particular, I'm talking to, to, to those in regards to marriage and the issue of this, this idea of submission. That we see submission is taught in the scriptures going back from Genesis. We see uh, Paul talks about it, that we're going to be mutually submissive to one another. But then within the marriage, there's also a role in which wives must be submissive to husbands. In a way that husbands are not submissive to wives. And people have a real big issue with that. In particular, women and those who've been caught up in the feminist movement. And I totally understand it because, guys, we are not the best leaders. It is not because there's something great in us. But what we see, if, I could, if you could look at the Trinity, that what we see here is the same thing going on in marriage, is husbands and wives are ontologically, we are both made in the image of God. There is nothing greater about men than women. But what we see in the roles that God has given to them, just as in the Trinity, there is one who submits and one who rules. That is a hard teaching. That is a difficult teaching. But if the second and third person of the Trinity can submit to the Father... That is a really good example, wives, to submit to your husbands. Now, I don't have time to go into all of how, the, how you do that in wisdom. That's for another time, another place. But just want to point that out as an aside. The church, just to review, the church has approved and said that God the Father and God the Son are ontologically equal. 
But in the way they work, or economically, they're subservient. Jesus, the Son, is subservient to the Father. Now, why do I go into all that? Because it is absolutely and utterly imperative Christian doctrine to say that Jesus is God. This is so important. When we say that, as the Apostles' Creed says, His only Son, when you say that Jesus is the Son of God, you are saying He is God. He has all the fullness, all the characters, characteristics of God. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature. And here's why that's so important. It's because it was absolutely necessary for Christ, the Messiah, to be God. There was nobody else who could save us but God. Here's the story of scriptures. God gave us a law. He said, do not touch of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve fell. They disobeyed God. And all of humanity has been broken and fallen ever since then. And there has not been a single human being who has ever been able to live a perfectly righteous life. Therefore, we are all worthy of wrath and justice. And not only that, is not only are we worthy of wrath and justice, but none of us have been powerful enough to resist the consequences of our sin, which is death. But what we see in the Old Testament, what we see in the New Testament, is that we, what we need is a perfectly righteous man and a perfectly powerful man. But no man is perfectly righteous, as no man is perfectly powerful, and therefore God had to become a man. He took on flesh. And so what we see is that in this Son, the Son of God, is perfectly righteous and perfectly powerful. He, Hosea 13 verse 4 says this, But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. And besides me there is no Savior. It had to be God. No man could be our Savior unless it was God who became man. And so what we see is that God comes down into human flesh. And he lives a perfect life of righteousness on our behalf. Romans 8 verses 3 and 4 says this. For God has done what the law weakened by flesh could not do. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh. In Jesus' flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who, became, who knew no sin, who is perfectly righteous, became sin so that you and I might have the righteousness of God. And then he also had to be perfectly powerful. Because he had to endure the consequences of sin. The consequences of sin are an infinite death. You know why it's an infinite death and an infinite wrath? Because your violation is against an infinite God. And therefore, God had to become man to take on the consequences so that he could swallow up an infinite wrath. Only an infinite being could swallow up an infinite wrath. And so that's what he does. The Godhood of Jesus supports the manhood of Jesus. So that while his body dies, he's risen to life. And therefore, he defeats death. He takes the consequences. He swallows death up. Now, Okay, I have stretched you thin. In regards to these theological matters, if you've, if you've checked out, enter back in now. Because here's what I want you to remember about the term only son. Two things I want you to remember when you hear Jesus Christ, his only son. First is the love of God that he came to get you himself. He did not stay in heaven. He came to get you. God himself came to get you. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. That is, a, that is a heart-rending verse. And second, so he came to get you. And second, because he is God, he is able. He is able to save. There's a great song by the, by the group called Hillsong, in which that, they talked about that. It's the, the, the theme of the song. He is able. He is able. 
Our hymnody talks about it over and over and over again. That he is able because he is God. Hebrews 7 verse 25 talks about this. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Because it's talking about the fact that there was God himself came and was the perfect priest for us. We see the combination of these names coming together. Able to do what? To save us to the uttermost. So those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You hear the name, his only son. When you hear the name, son of God, look at the love of God. Look at the ability and sufficiency of God. Therefore, because he is God's salvation for us, Jesus is, because he perfectly and perpetually fulfills the office of Messiah on our behalf, and because Jesus is the sufficient son of God, the radiance of God's glory, therefore, what we see in Philippians, what happens? God gives him the name that is above all names. And what is that name? Lord. It's Lord. The fourth title. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Philippians 2, verse 11, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The end goal of that phrase is to get to Lord. That because he is Jesus, our Savior, because he is Christ, the Messiah, who has perfectly fulfilled the prophet, priest, and king role, because he is sufficiently God, made man to save us, therefore we declare him Lord. The psalmists and the biblical writers throughout the Old and New Testament, they love the name of the Lord. They love the name of the Lord. They say it over and over and over again. Now this means some incredible and important things when we come down to some application. Because the key question for you this morning, is Jesus your Lord? Is he your Savior? Is he your Messiah? Is he he God, Emmanuel, who came for you? And finally, ultimately, is he your Lord? Three key words I want, you, I want you to look at this morning in regards to Christ's lordship. And looking at and evaluating your own life and whether you bow to him. What we see in the passage, two words in the passage, and then I'll splice out into three activities. Two words, bow and confess. That every name may bow and every tongue confess. Three words, though, three activities that you should do in, 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 in bowing to the lordship of Jesus Christ. First is you submit. First is submission. It says every knee will bow. The imagery of bowing is one of submission. This is a posture of compliance. It is acknowledgement that Jesus is your authority and your king in your life. You comply with his laws and his calls in your life. So here's the question, an evaluating question for yourself. Am I willing to obey no matter what God says, no matter how I feel about this? Am I willing to obey... Whatever Jesus, my Lord, says, no matter how I feel about it. Submission. It also might mean, a good another good question might be, are you willing to accept whatever God brings into your life? Is your, he's your Lord. He's planned out your days. He's bringing all things into your life. He's the king. Are you willing to accept whatever he brings into your life? So one is submission. Are you submitting to him as Lord? Second, dependence. See, to bow is a, is a, is a posture of submission, but it's also kind of a, a vulnerability, isn't it? You're putting yourself completely in a prone position before God. You bow before Him in utter dependence, and to confess the lordship of, of Jesus Christ is to say that He alone is your Savior. Psalm 20, verses 1, and then verse 7, it says this Trust in the name of the Lord our God. Trust in His name. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. 
Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The big issue is, is there something else are you looking to for your salvation besides Jesus as Lord? Is there something else that has replaced him? Whether it be your work, your ability to parent, the goodness of your marriage, the beauty of your life, whatever it may be, if it replaces him, if it goes above him, that is an idol. And you're not serving him and depending upon him, truly trusting in him. We don't rely upon the Lord and we would expect him to provide a salvation for us in all situations. Third, so submission, dependence, the third is worship. Worship. Bowing is a, is a posture of submission, a prone position of dependence, but it's also depend, a, a position of worship. We bow and we confess. Bowing, confessing, and we glorify God the Father in doing so. These are the words of worship. We are bowing. And, and, and look at the passage there. It's interesting. We bow. It says, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. We are doing this bowing and this confessing in front of the world. Our worship is, is evangelistic. It's proclamation. They were proclaiming to one another here in this room, proclaiming to our own souls, and proclaiming to a watching world that Jesus is King. So when we gather on Sundays, when people see cars, it's trite, and it's, it's, this, it's got to be more than this. But when they see cars, the people gathering every Sunday to give their Sunday mornings to worshiping Christ as King, that's a big deal. That's a means of evangelism. And I close, I want to bring this down to this. You notice the phrase in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. Our Lord. At first, there's a communal aspect to that, right? It's not just my Lord, it's our Lord. And so we confess this together. It means in order to profess this, you live in community. But I do want to focus actually on the more individual. If you're going to say this, if you're going to say the Apostles' Creed, and what you actually believe that Jesus is Lord, then he actually needs to be your Lord. You can't say this with the community of God's people if you say it and you don't believe it and it's not true, it's a lie. So my question this morning is, is he your Lord? We want him to be Savior. We love that. But is he your Lord? They are a package deal that go together. Let me give you an illustrate this way. If I show up at your door, my name's Andrew Henley, by the way, for those of you who are new. First and last name, Andrew Henley. Mine actually is a last name, not a title. Andrew Henley is my name. And I knock on your door and you say, come in, Andrew, but Henley, I want you to stay out. I, I, I can't do that, can I? I? It's not like the first, the top part of me is Andrew and the bottom part of me is Henley. They, they go together. Therefore, you cannot ask Jesus to come into your life as Savior and not have him come into your life as Lord. They are a package deal. To say, Jesus, come into my life, forgive my sins, answer my prayers, do this and do that for me, but don't, do the, don't be the absolute master of my life is absolutely inconsistent. He cannot come in at all unless he comes in both as Savior and as Lord of your life. So my question is, have you done that? And for those of you that need it spelled out, this is the point. This is the, this is the altar call, brothers and sisters. This is to come to the altar of Jesus who has paid all your sins for you, who is your Savior, and now says, will you follow me? Because the life that I offer is better than any other gods of this world. So for some of you this morning, you have never lived a single day in which Christ is the Lord of your life. Would you come and you repent for the first time and say, here's what you think about with this word Lord. He, God came to save you. What I want you to think about in the word Lord is he is worthy. Will you see for the first time today that he is worthy of you submitting your life, being dependent upon him, of worshiping him with all that you do? 
Most of you, this may not be the first day, but you need to simply do what we need to do on a daily basis, which is repent and believe and obey and lay your life once again another morning of your life and say, I'll wake up today and I'll say you are my Lord. You are my God and you are my King. Would you do that this morning? Would you pray with me as I pray in just a minute? When you think of the word Lord, I want you to think he is worthy. He is worthy of my life. He is worthy of my all. Let's pray. Whenever we think of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, it can be convicting. So right now, if you thought of some aspect of your life that you know is not under submission to Christ as King, would you lay at His feet right now? If you understand and realize that there's something else that you're depending on beyond and above Him to save you, whether it's your own righteousness, whatever it may be, that you repent of that now, profess Him as Lord. Oh, gracious God, I confess my success idol. I, I, I repent before you of my performance idol that I'm sure I have bowed before even this morning. Gracious God, I pray that you would be more worthy than anything else I serve in this, in this life. My wife, my kids, my church, my ego, the approval of others. God, I lay it down at your feet. And I pray that by your spirit, you would bring me to the position of my, in my life of bowing and worshiping you. Gracious God, I thank you that you are worthy. That there is none like you. That you are worthy of adoration and worship from every single aspect and area of my life. I pray that you would make that true. That you would bring that about by the power of your spirit. I ask this for the glory of the name of Jesus, for the glory of God the Father. It's in their name I pray. Amen.